Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, PodcastOne.com, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Quick break to tell you guys about NFL Game Pass, the only way that you can replay every game all season long. You can relive all the gutsy calls, crazy catches, wild comebacks, and breakout stars from every game every week. It's all the action, all the football you can handle, all in one place. So every game that we're talking about right now, you guys can rewatch it after the fact. I'm going to be going back, and you guys can too. Go check out Lamar Jackson in week one. Go check out Dak Prescott and what that Cowboys offense actually did. Go check out Kyler Murray and his NFL debut. That's my favorite thing about NFL Game Pass. You can go back and watch at any time. And if you haven't watched a condensed game yet, you have to try it out. It's every play from the game back to back to back, so you can replay an entire NFL game in the fraction of the time it normally takes. It's how I'm able to follow all the MVP candidates, all the breakout stars, and, of course, your waiver wire pickups all season long. To see all the action this season and stay on top of all the big storylines, you need NFL Game Pass. Best of all, you can kick off the 2019 NFL season with a seven-day free trial of NFL Game Pass. Just sign up now at NFL.com slash Pro Football Focus NFL. Podcast One presents, this is a collect call from Sing Sing. My name is John J. Lennon. I'm locked up for selling drugs and committing murder. I'm also a contributor for Esquire Magazine and the Marshall Project. So I'm a writer and I'm a prisoner. Imagine trying to stay focused and talk about issues of substance with geeks slamming, prisoners screaming, and PAs blaring in the background. Get new episodes every Wednesday on Spotify, Podcast One, and Apple Podcasts. Do you not understand that they are that way because you're Joe Flacco? And you just like to discredit things that people deserve credit for. That you can't possibly be expected to defend that. Talk about the game, fam. So who cares about what people think about us? Yeah, I like football, I like football season, all the things that go with it. We're now recording on Podcast One. Hey, Podcast One, folks. We are here. Perfect. I screwed up my audio. I think we got it now. I think we got it. We got the right mic? Yes, I think we're good. Anyway, off-season show. Always got to get creative with this stuff, but there's a lot of football to talk about. Do you want to just do a schedule extravaganza? A three-hour show like the uh, We should do it. Yeah, emergency pod tomorrow morning. Four-hour breakdown of everybody's schedule. What do you think? I know, like, so there's a lot of people out there that love this whole, you know, schedule release time, the the whole thing. Um, I've never been one of them, and I don't really understand it. And this is at the best of times. I just, it, it's not. Look, I don't think you've tried to understand it. I mean. People want to know. I guess. They want to know, like, what am I going to be seeing the first month of the season? What am I going to be seeing right. in crunch time in December? When am I going to take my one? A lot of people make a trip, right? Yeah. I'm going to take one trip so that's fair. to go if to you, Miami like, or whatever, right? That makes sense. If you're if you're a kind of person that's like look, waiting for this so you can legitimately plan out like a trip somewhere, that, that makes perfect sense. That's fine. But, I mean, if it's just like, like the schedule is the schedule. It's going to come out. There'll be games. We'll watch them. At this point, all I'm hoping for is that there's a season, right? I, like what order these games, the most of which we know are happening, come in, I couldn't care less about. And that's generally. 
Yeah. Now well, this year, it's like there's a this three hour different. show about it. I no. No. Hey, people need stuff to talk about, so let them let them have fun. We're gonna be live as well. If tonight's the, if, cocktail yeah, hour. If the cocktail hour is three hours about the schedule, I'm walking away. You can just <laughs> look at the couch for the next three hours. Really you're really selling it. Good job. All right. Today's show, we've got all sorts of goodies. We've got uh, on PFF.com two big articles this week that we're going to discuss. The top 25 players under 25. Always great discussion points there. Uh, who joins Patrick Mahomes on that list? And your write up, the second year breakout players. So guys that were rookies last year, obviously heading into their second year. That Are you predicting a breakout for them? Are you just anticipating? What was your criteria for this? Yeah, players that I think could and potentially should have breakout seasons. Okay, and then uh, we're going to wrap it up on on podcast only. So if you're listening on, or watching on YouTube, you're going to have to go download the podcast to hear our interview with Nick Kwiatkowski, newest, one of the newest linebackers uh, for the Las Vegas Raiders, former Chicago Bear. Uh, we get into the nitty-gritty of linebacker play, what went into his decision going to the Raiders and his flipper, Sam, the flipper yes. that I mentioned in the uh, 2017 draft guide, right? 17. Yeah, right. We'll 2018, also be, 16 draft guide. We're also going to be answering a couple of questions that got sent in. Remember, if you want to win a free PFF subscription, you can ask us questions uh, using the reviews of the podcast on iTunes. So go to iTunes, review the podcast in your review, ask your question, but critically leave away for us to get in contact with you, a Twitter handle, you know, some kind of social media handle name that we can actually access because the two questions we're going to be reading out, neither of them did that. Um, and the questions, questions that did do that were not great. So I'm going to read out the better questions and, you know, those guys missed out because they didn't leave their name. Um, but that's important. Leave some way of us of getting in touch with you. And a few people did that, but I didn't love their questions. So if you want the free thing, give us a way of getting in touch with you and ask a good question. Yeah, ask a good question is really key. I mean, getting Sam to like something is like you got like a 10 percent chance to get him to like something just in general in life. So if he does choose your question, feel feel good about it. Um, anyway, let's get to the top uh, 25 players under 25. Let's discuss this a little bit. Uh, ben Lindsay wrote the article over at PFF.com. But, you know, he wrote the article. We all kind of work together on a lot of these lists. Patrick Mahomes, number one. Quentin Nelson, this was also uh, position agnostic, right? So it was we weren't looking at position value. We were just looking at the best players. So Quentin Nelson, the guard from the Colts, number two. I mean, if we're talking about Hall of Fame caliber trajectories, Patrick Mahomes and Quentin Nelson both have it already, right, Sam? Yeah. Um, and it's, I mean, how scary is that for the rest of the NFL? The Patrick Mahomes is still under 25. I know. Like, he... You know, we we're working on this offseason series, and and one of the things we're doing is is diving into Randy Moss and when he first arrived in the onto the NFL scene. And I was think I was talking to somebody about this. And I was like, he might have been the last person that legitimately changed everything in the in the NFL landscape. He changed the way teams played defense. He changed the the course of the Packers franchise, um, who thought they were on their way to a mini dynasty. Um, and went, then had to go and draft three defensive backs, one, two, three, the next season. But the next guys that do that might be Patrick Mahomes and Lamar Jackson, depending on whether his trend continues. Like those two guys are so good and so young that they are changing everything in front of them. Like Patrick Mahomes has potentially knocked off the New England Patriots 
and is now starting a Kansas City Chiefs dynasty. So that's an interesting point there, right? Randy Moss. So Randy Moss takes over the league. The Packers respond by drafting a million corners. What would be the response to Patrick Mahomes? You talked about the Chargers this offseason. They have done a nice job adding to their coverage unit. I mean, if they were going to draft somebody to maybe combat Patrick Mahomes, it's probably another guy in this list, Derwin James. Uh, but as far as from a team building standpoint, if you're in the AFC West, are you changing? Are you doing what the Denver Broncos did? And OK, I need I need Jerry Judy. I need KJ Hamler. I, I just need to do this. And the Raiders, I, I need Henry Ruggs. Like, I mean, that's how they're trying to keep up with them with speed, with playmakers. Or do you try to do it defensively like we you had talked about the Chargers if they had a chance at Jeffrey Okuda at number six overall? What an incredible pick that would be to pair him with Casey Hayward, to pair him with Derwin James and all the talent that the Chargers have in the back seven. What do you do to keep up with Patrick Mahomes? Do you just try to compete offensively or figure something out defensively to slow him down? I mean, yeah, I think we've seen a couple of the first waves of the response already. The the first one is a ton of NFL teams just trying to get faster, you know, drafting speed, um, going after speed, trading for speed, trying to assemble the kind of track star group of offensive weapons that the Chiefs have. The difference is you don't have a Patrick Mahomes, so it's probably not going to be as effective. And then I think the other way is teams like the uh, Los Angeles Chargers who instead go, look, we can't compete with that. So instead, we're going to focus more on, you know, a, a ball control ground attack kind of offense and try and uh, try and match up with them that way. You know, we might not be able to beat them in a shootout, but we might be able to restrict what they do and slow them down and combat them in, in that different direction. So I think we've seen a couple of attempts, right, like immediate reactions to what the Chiefs have done so far, and it's it's going to be left to see how that plays out long term. Some of the player debates that I love the most are the ones that you get in college and then they carry on to the NFL. If you remember back in college, A.J. Green and Julio Jones were both mm. in the SEC, right? Um, same year coming out, right? 2011, yeah. they both came, right? So they, so they just came through together. Who's the best receiver in the uh, in the SEC? There was an actual debate. They, they go to the draft together. They go to the NFL together and all that stuff. A similar debate, maybe in the AFC, if you put Patrick Mahomes as the number one quarterback there, which I think is fair, Deshaun Watson or Lamar Jackson. And, you know, they're at seven and eight, respectively, on this list. And despite Lamar coming off that MVP caliber season, we put Watson just ahead of him. And again, the difference in a number in a list is really splitting hairs. And um, but but that's those are the fun discussion points. I think if you look at the body of work. Deshaun Watson, yes, is a little bit higher than Lamar Jackson. If you believe in trajectories, um, which I do think are a little bit overrated, then Lamar's trajectory looks great. I mean, it's, you know, his curve's not flattening anytime soon. He's he's continuing to ascend and get better and better. Do you have an opinion? Deshaun Watson or Lamar Jackson going forward? Did you just tie a Lamar Jackson trajectory to a COVID-19 metaphor? I'd rather that you did not highlight that point okay, and okay. you just skate let on it right roll. by it fair enough let it roll why are we wearing the same shirt by the way why are you wearing the same color shirt as me i don't know listen i wear this shirt every single day because i have two of them so yeah. i basically wear this shirt every day around the house so hmm. it's not the same this. it's uh, we uh, scarily we actually own that same shirt but this is not that one you see i don't have the a old, I don't have the a old view. under armor right. sponsor that we had come on back under armor i'll wear your stuff on the pod every day because I wear it every day. Come on back, guys. Because <laughs> now you don't need to dress up. We don't need to be anywhere. Um, anyway, Lamar, 
or yeah. Watson. So obviously last year, if, you're, if it's just last season, it's Lamar, right? But the question is, is he going to continue on that pathway? Is he going to regress? Is, all those kind of things. And I think if you look at everything, it's you know, it's fair to edge Watson ahead. The, the interesting thing is the debate around Lamar Jackson. You know, there's some people on Twitter that think that are various sides of this discussion. Lamar Jackson is clearly aided by the offense that was built around him in a way nobody else has a system built around him in the NFL right now, right? He has the most custom, bespoke, tailor-made offense of any quarterback in the NFL. But that's only the case because he has a unique skill set that enabled right. him to do that, right? He's earned that, so to speak. Yeah, so he is yeah. like he is the source. He's the keystone um, the foundation pad that allows him to build this offense that in turn lets him look better. So how do you evaluate that in terms of, is that a plus or a negative against him? Um, because a guy like Deshaun Watson, like that offense is not custom made to him to help him be better. In fact, if anything, they're systematically making his life harder in, in a similar way that the Seahawks have with Russell Wilson at times. Um, so, it's very tricky when you try and evaluate how good he is because he's being helped in that way. Now, you know, so I got into a discussion on, on Twitter with uh, Stephen Ruiz from USA Today about this. He's like, well, you know, everybody's offense is supposedly. But there were, there were, you know, articles about how Greg Roman went in there, went through the playbook, tossed out everything that did not fit what Jackson likes to do and started throwing, bringing in a whole bunch more stuff that do, that did, you know, bring drawing from the, the 2012 49ers and those other teams. So this offense is tailor made unlike anything else. And you compare it to like the Browns with Baker Mayfield or the Jets with Sam Darnold. They just have the offense, right? And it doesn't change. It's, this is what we do and you need to be better within it. They're not being helped out at all by their offense. Now you can make the case that, Neither of them have this unique special skill set that Lamar Jackson does, so they don't earn this custom offense. But I think that is central to every piece of evaluation on Lamar Jackson and always has been. Even in college, we were talking about, look, they do this. They do an incredible amount of strange, unique things because of his athletic skills. And that's what opens up the ability for him to be this, uh, you know, a viable passer. And that's how it was going to have to work at the NFL level. See, I think that's the key, right? Uh, I wrote the article that there's a path to success for Lamar Jackson coming mm -hmm. out of college, and it was it was built around that, these macro concepts. Yes, every quarterback has like, hey, here are my favorite plays. I like to run stick. I like to run mesh. Like They have these plays that could get put in, but at a macro level, the concept of if you have Lamar Jackson, you have to use him as a runner in the design running game. Because if you, for two for two reasons, as you said, it opens up throws. And because he's a dynamic runner. So you actually have to do that. If you decide to just make him a pocket passer and take that element away from him, you're not building the offense around him completely. So the Ravens have done that really well. And the idea that um, he's earned it, so to speak, right? You can only do this because of his skill set. Reminds me of a couple other times in NFL history. Remember, like Wes Welker used to catch like 120 passes a year and somebody would say, well, they're all short passes. And it's like, yes. Because of his skill set, right? Because he can do something with it. Like you wouldn't do that with Kelvin Benjamin just to feed him 120 catches. You do it with Wes Welker because you know that he's good at that. Um, RG3, when he had that incredible season, you could say he benefited from play action, but he benefited from play action in part because he was one of the runners, much like Lamar Jackson. It wasn't just like a fake handoff. He was literally changing the math 
defensively because the Redskins used him as a runner the same way the Ravens are. So that is like credit to the player, credit to Wes Welker for having that skill set that allowed him to have high volume credit RG3 or Lamar Jackson for being the runner that allows for more open throws, better play action and quote unquote easier opportunities. It um, does. It does make you wonder, though, what it would look like if, you know, a bunch of other unique athletes, but substandard um, NFL pocket passers, what what they would look like if they had an offense equally tailored to what they do. Right. Because we've seen, uh, you know, Lamar Jackson is a superior rushing talent to almost anybody out there. Right. He's up there with Michael Vick as one of the best we've ever seen. So. You know, you can't just say, what, is it, what does the offense look like with Taysom Hill or whatever? Because Taysom Hill is not that level of athlete. He's an athlete, but, you know, there are levels to this thing. And Lamar Jackson is, is another couple of steps above Taysom Hill and almost anybody else. But there have been players that came out of college football that didn't fit the conventional NFL mold and never got the shot to, go, to, to have the thing built around them. And we'll never see what that would have looked like. So what would, a, what would a, an offense custom built around Vince Young look like? What would an offense custom built yeah. around? You remember Reggie McNeil, the, the Texas A&M dude that ran like a 4-3? You're putting Reggie ever, McNeil in that group? Hell yeah. I don't think I – that dude ran a 4-3 flat, and I don't think ever got a shot to even play I, quarterback in the NFL. I think Michael Vick and Vince Young are the, are the fair questions, right? If you if Michael Vick – and I made, this, I made this comparison when we were talking about Lamar. Not only that Lamar and Vick are similar in that they weren't the best, most accurate passers, and they, they, they truly have one-of-a-kind – two of a kind rushing skill sets, right? Generational rushing skill sets. But there were articles back in the day where there was like, Vic is going to be a West coast offense quarterback. We're going to fit him into our system. And I was like, if you hear that said about Lamar Jackson, like throw away all your Baltimore Ravens shares, like you're in trouble, right? You're not going to say Lamar is going to fit into our offense. They did that with Vic. So Vic in a unique tailored offense early in his career would have been fascinating. Same thing with Vince young. I think the thing that makes Lamar unique though, is he's still a young football player in general. Like he still was playing without a playbook in high school and just running around and making plays. He progressed throughout his time at Louisville. He did play in a somewhat complex passing offense with Bobby Petrino. And the thing we kept saying too was like, hey, narrative buster here. Lamar doesn't just run around and make plays in college. That's that wasn't the way he did it. He actually went through progressions. So he had he had like pocket traits that weren't necessary that were good that weren't necessarily accuracy, but he had a willingness to play from the pocket. He was not a, he's not a backyard football player. Like Patrick Mahomes is more of a backyard football player than Lamar Jackson. Deshaun Watson surprisingly has been more of a backyard football player. I think at the NFL level than Lamar Jackson has. So I think that's like the one other thing that he has going for him is he's got the unique rushing skill set plus a willingness to do everything he's got to do from the pocket. The other thing that that it's worth noting is, You know, Greg Roman is arguably the best the league has ever seen at doing this in terms of crafting this kind of offense. So it's not like, excuse me, it's not like with Michael Vick and Vince Young, nothing changed, right? Like they didn't go straight into the offense that the backup, like the the standard goofy, you know, immobile white quarterback that was preceding them. Um, It's not like they just stepped into Kerry Collins offense or whatever and, and did exactly the same thing. Like they did change certain things for Michael Vick or for Vince Young. 
but they weren't as they didn't know they weren't as good at it as as Greg Roman is right. So they would change a couple of little tweaks here and there and give them yeah, a like couple they had of options. zone read stuff in 06 for Vince right. Young like that did but exist. They don't, like they didn't have the the sheer array of ways to take advantage of that 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 Greg Roman has now. It's like you know when you talk about those. Um, you go back 20 years and you start to look at these offenses, even ones that are like ahead of their time. They do some things that the league isn't ready for, but they haven't worked out the complete set that makes it a 2020 offense. You know, they don't have like the, the, the quick game in there that immediately invalidates all of your pass rush presence. So, you know, Michael Vick, Vince Young, they had certain things tailored to them, but they, they did not have this like custom made, you know, tailored offense the way that Lamar Jackson does. He has this like, coach built you know bugatti five million dollar special thing whereas vince young or michael vick just had like a custom paint job on a regular car custom paint job the analogies continue from sam Uh, contrast that with what deshaun watson has done watson has stepped in and has had a pretty bad offensive line throughout most of his time uh prior to getting will fuller he had just deandre hopkins to throw to and, and even in Will Fuller's been so banged up, there are many times throughout Watson's career where you look, you go to premium stats and you look at the Texans grades and the grades in the offense are terrible across the board, except for Watson and Hopkins. So that would be, and now that's the opposite of Lamar, right? So there's always a little bit of push and pull here, right? Offense is built around Lamar. Great. That's his skill set. However, because of that, the offensive line is grading really well. Receivers are grading well. The tight ends are great. Like the whole offense is grading well around him. Watson's never had that. He's had this terrible offensive line. Yes, he invites a lot of the pressure upon himself, but it's much like Russell Wilson. It's like both things are true. The line is bad at blocking. Watson's bad at inviting pressure, right? He's under pressure more than he should be. Both things are are true. Um, but Watson has done a lot with, I think, a little other than, you know, having new Hopkins, which is great. And then when Will Fuller's on the field, this is an explosive offense. This is great. Um, So I think Watson deserves credit for doing a lot with not a great supporting cast. But on the other hand, when some of those pieces are there, he's had some some bouts where it's like, oh, even even with uh, Kiki Cutie out there. Right. You've got some tough uh, playmakers to uh, to cover in Houston. What are your thoughts on Watson so far throughout his career? I mean, I think you pretty much summed it up. He is he's the other end of the scale in that whatever you it's difficult to quantify how much Lamar is helped by his environment. And it's difficult to quantify how much um, he, he is hindered by his environment in, in Houston. Um, But I think there's almost no way of looking at it and saying that Deshaun Watson isn't being undermined by everybody there, except new Compkins, who's no longer there. So yeah, Watson has, he's obviously been a, I think a much better quarterback than a lot of people expected him to be. He's developed into an interesting one from a stylistic point of view. He's very Russell Wilson-like in terms of a lot of his play style. And again, along with Wilson, that doesn't help his evaluation, right? Because he will make himself, he will put himself in tougher situations than he needs to be, which muddies the waters in terms of trying to work out how much he's being screwed by his environment. And it's the same with Wilson. Like He invites so much pressure on himself that it's hard to just say, Look, the offensive line is garbage, so Wilson doesn't have a shot. It's like, well, yeah, but he's also the architect of a lot of his own problems. Watson has evolved a little bit, right? Because when he was in college, uh, once again, I I wrote this for ESPN years ago when they because they played in the ACC against each other. 
Watson or Lamar. And I took Watson because he was a better passer at the time. And I still think overall he's a better passer than Lamar, but he has changed the way he's passed through the years. It was a lot of free snap read, go to the first read. And then whether it was schemed up or or taught to him at Clemson, or once again, is it just his skill set where they said, Hey, we don't think you're that comfortable getting to number two and number three and working backside and all that stuff. So just take off. But there was a lot of, he was really good pre-snap got to the open guy, but if it wasn't there, he would run and take off. And in the NFL, he's still not great at going through his reads Deshaun Watson. So it is funny because I say Watson's probably a better passer, but Lamar does more advanced po- you know, in the pocket type of things than Watson. Watson does is not great from an accuracy standpoint, like getting to his second read or his third read within the pocket. But instead of what when he in college, when he take off, he's now extending plays. And like you said, playing more like Russell Wilson uh, and creating highlight real plays. So um, I, I think it's I think it's close between the two. We went with Watson over Lamar seven and eight on this list. Again, position, not position specific. If we were going positional value, we're talking about Mahomes. Watson and Lamar clearly being the top three guys uh, on this list at this point. And uh, the other position, like we, a couple positions that were back to back. We have Miles Garrett at nine, Nick Bosa at 10. Miles Garrett versus Nick Bosa. Garrett is still under 25. Nick Bosa is not even 23 yet. So <laughs> he's still a couple years behind Garrett from an age standpoint. Who would you take, Miles Garrett or. Nick Bosa, two guys who dominated in college and have carried it right into the NFL. I I think would lean Nick Bosa um, just because like, he hit the ground running in a genuinely phenomenal way as a rookie. When you start diving back into the, the college statistics of all of them, Nick Bosa, Joey Bosa, Miles um, Garrett, and now Chase Young for this year. Like Chase Young has the best college career sort of as a whole and has the best grade. But Nick Bosa has the best win rate. Like he generates pressure at a greater rate than any of these other guys. And those are like the best. Those are the best pass rushers, edge rushers to come along, you know, since at least 2011. Right. That Von Miller kind of season. So I think given how productive he was in year one, I just think the ceiling for Nick Bosa has got to be higher, even given what we saw from Miles Garrett last year. Last year was the sort of first year that I think Miles Garrett really threatened that he was going to become like the best pass rusher in the NFL, the way everyone assumed he was given, you know, his athleticism and his freaky ability coming out. Yeah, I, I think I'd lean Garrett here. I like Garrett over Nick Bosa. I, I just think both guys are so similar in that. Yes, th- these are some of the first guys where we have data for every snap that they've taken since high school. Like we have their true freshman seasons, sophomore, junior years. Uh, Bosa didn't really play as a junior, but Garrett has been a dominant player all the way through as has Bosa. Like they have both been right there. I think Garrett's athleticism though, uh, does help him to your point. Like he has progressed every year where like the Bosa's were kind of finished products as, as freshmen, which is okay. You've said this multiple times. It's okay to be that finished product because they're awesome. And they don't need to get that much better to be effective NFL players. So both Boses are so similar, um, but they've just been so polished, even just since they were freshmen, where Garrett, I think, does still continue to improve. That as a criticism, I think, is only valid if the guy was not that good a player, right? Like If he was just an okay or a decent college player and he was maxed out in terms of like he does everything, he's not going to get any better from where he is. 
that would be a problem because the competition is about to get better. But if he's dominant, like if he's the best player at his position in the nation and he's maxed out, okay, I, I'm fine with that. Yeah, I mean, I, I got a whole theory on trait stuff and, you know, because summed up, I think not all traits are created equal, Sam. It's not even uh, – this isn't really groundbreaking, but I was thinking about it the other day with – uh, when we talk about speed receivers and, you know, chasing that speed receiver or whatever, if you if you say I want the super fast receiver and you equate that with a quarterback that has a cannon for an arm, they're just not the same thing because the cannon for an arm really only matters, what, 15, 20 throws per year when a guy has to be good on 600. Right. That's why big armed quarterbacks fail. It's because people look at the trait and equate that with upside and future success because it shows up 20 times, but you have to be good on the other 580 plays. Whereas a speed receiver can hit his quote unquote upside by just making a couple plays per game, right? The same number of plays, but it's okay. like, if he's not great on those other plays, like it's okay. You can still get value out of him. You can still get 40 catches at 19 yards a pop. And that's actually adding value to your team. If you have a quarterback who could only make two or three good plays per game and everything else is terrible, he's never going to play. You know what I mean? So like these traits like, here's a trait. Here's a trait. They're both really good, but they're not bringing you the same uh, return. You know what I mean? So I think that's where people lose this uh, this whole, like, upside debate, you know, to your point. Oh, Nick Bosa's got to, no upside. Like, who cares? He's already a top 10 caliber uh, edge defender in the NFL. So I'll take Garrett. You'll take Bosa in that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one other one I thought was interesting with running back here. Saquon Barkley comes in at 13. Nick Chubb at 14. And people may have been surprised a couple of years ago if we were actually debating Barkley or Chubb and who's the better running back going forward. Who would you take Saquon Barkley or Nick Chubb best under 25 running back at this point in the list? Yeah, I think we got it the wrong. I think we got it the wrong way around. I think Nick oh, Chubb. No, I think we got it right. No, I think Nick Chubb has been better. He hasn't had the same volume, but he's been better and he hasn't had. It's not like he had a superior situation. You know, that would be the thing is if you looked at it and said, okay, yeah, Saquon Barkley hasn't necessarily been as good, but look at what he's been dealing with. Like Chubb hasn't had a great situation either. So he's been dominant in every aspect. Basically, the only thing that's limited him has been how many times they've given him the ball. That's the one thing I'll say. For me, it's a big what if. If I know I have a good offensive line, I want Saquon Barkley. Um, now, Nick Chubb creates big plays w- as well, and he has at an incredible rate. But if I know I could block it up, I want the ball in Saquon's hands. Um, if I don't have a great offensive line, we've already one of our criticisms of Barkley coming out is he's not great necessarily either behind the line of scrimmage or in general um, just doesn't have a great feel as a runner compared to other more polished running backs. Nick Chubb, I think, can do more with less. But if I know I've got a pretty good offensive line, I'm getting five or six. 60 yard plays out of Barkley in a given season, plus what he can do in the past game, not just catch and run, but the ability to maybe line up at receiver a little bit more than Nick Chubb. So I like Barkley a little bit more because of that. However, if I don't have a great offensive line, I feel like Chubb can do a little bit more. I think it's, it's, it's almost the exact same argument as uh, Garrett versus Nick Bosa, right? It's one guy looks better doing it and the other guy's better doing it. Um, and I took the guys that look better both times, both and, you times took the guys, right. and you took the production. I'll take the guy that's just been better. <laughs> like, I don't care what it looks like. Nick Chubb has been a, a better football player than Saquon Barkley, and I don't think you can put it down to the environment that either guy is in, has been in. 
All right. Well, I'll let you go up and down the list. Are there any other names that are um, that interest you? One that stood out to me is uh, Kenny Clark. Yeah. Green Bay Packers nose tackle. The fact that he's still on this list. Yeah. Is incredible because the, he's been a good nose tackle in the NFL for a few years now, and he's still under 25. The uh, the Saquon Nick Chubb thing is also perfectly on brand for you as well because you took the younger player. Oh, you got to take. Yeah. Got to take the younger guy. Well, no, because Garrett's older. But yeah, the younger guy, get older. Yeah, I mean, so it, the Saquon as they get Nick older, Chubb get thing is. The Saquon yeah. Chubb one. You took the younger guy. Got to take the young guy. Yeah, it's crazy that, that, um, that Kenny Clark is still under 25. Now, he's just scraping under the cutoff. Like, this was 25 when the season starts, and he'll be 24, 11 months, and six days. So he's making it by, you know, three weeks. Um, but you're right, he's still in there, and he is... His development has been crazy because he came in as a very one-dimensional, you know, uh, player and has developed into an all-round dominant nose tackle. Yeah, he was definitely more of a, a run-stopping interior player at UCLA, had a great feel uh, for defending the run, and he's, he's developed as a pass rusher. And it, th- So for those who don't know, the league at any given time probably has maybe two or three guys who are true, genuine nose tackles who are threats getting after the quarterback. Is that fair? I mean, just like legitimate threats through the years. We've seen like Marcel Darius do it. We've seen Linval Joseph. Um, sometimes you get a huge guy like Avita Vea, who's one of them. But Kenny Clark, I think is kind of taking the mantle as the nose tackle. That is a legitimate pass rush threat. A guy that can uh, handle blocks, double teams from centers and guards, but also get after the quarterback. There's really not a lot of guys in the world who do that all that well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, he is. It's a position that's that's gone uh, undergone a lot of change in the NFL, and yet he has become he's become the new prototype as to what a, a nose tackle should look like. Right, a dominant force against the run, but a guy who's got pass rushing skills and can stay there every down and can play you know the full slate of snaps you're going to need over a season. He is the the modern prototype of what a nose tackle should be. Well, Sam, anything else on this list? There's a whole bunch of corners and receivers. Go check it out. It's pff.com. Top top 25 under 25, one of our most pop- popular offseason articles every single year. Get to see what all those young guys are doing. Yeah, you can check out the rest of the list. Let's uh, let's move on to the breakout candidates, guys. Before we do that, I want to talk about your, um, your yard work, Sam. Because hmm. it's spring. It is. Uh, you keep sending me pictures of uh, all the yard Ooh, work you're doing. Careful and all with the, this. Careful all, now with this segue. All the landscaping you're doing because the flowers are blooming, the grass is growing. It's time to mow your lawn. Yeah. And thanks to our sponsor, Manscaped, you can trim the hedges below the belt safely and efficiently. I'm talking about ball trimmers. Ball trimmers, Sam. Uh-huh. Manscaped is here to make sure your balls are smooth and smelling nice. After all, it's time for some spring cleaning. I wouldn't like to make it extremely clear that any photos I've been sending you have been of actual <laughs> landscaping outside of a house, not, you know, human landscaping. Oh, I really screwed up that entire transition. That was terrible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're doing, yeah. like, real work around the yard, mm-hmm. and I'm talking about manscaping. But right. Manscaped is the only men's brand dedicated to below-the-waist grooming. They have forever changed the grooming game with their perfect package 3.0 precision-engineered tools for your family jewels works really well you're not going to hurt yourself that is crucial perfect package 3.0 kit comes with the essential lawnmower 3.0 it's the waterproof cordless body trimmer and a ton of other liquid formulations to round out 
your manscaping routine. It's not just one thing, Sam. It's a whole bunch of stuff. It's a third-generation trimmer. It gets better every year. It's as powerful as Sam's car. And inside the perfect package, you'll also find the Manscaped Crop Preserver, the anti-chafing ball deodorant and moisturizer. It's starting to get hot outside, and this is crucial. So your ball stops sticking to your leg. Hmm. Important. Very the spring important. spring copy is fantastic. As, your, as our treat, you'll also find the cop, Crop Reviver. Sorry. Crop Reviver, which will keep your ball smelling fresh, just like spring flowers. Subscribe to the perfect package and get a new replacement blade refill for your lawnmower trimmer delivered to your door every three months. I feel like I'm getting stuff delivered to my door. I, I've got like three to five packages per day. Yeah. Right now. So add this to your list, guys. Uh, the lawnmower trimmer every three months, you get the replacement. And for a limited time, you also get two free gifts, the shed travel bag and the patented high performance anti-chafing manscaped boxer briefs. It's the perfect package for your perfect package. You get 20% off plus free shipping with the code PFF at manscaped.com. That's PFF at manscaped.com. 20% off plus free shipping at manscaped.com. It's spring cleanup, baby. Your balls will thank you. Manscaped.com. PFF is your promo code. She's glorious. Great work. What do you want to talk about now? That took a lot out of me. Breakout candidate. All right, tell me about him. Yeah, so article uh, basically predicting, highlighting some guys that could be potential uh, second-year breakout candidates. Um, obviously, like, ideally, you don't want to target guys that have already broken out, you know, kind of defies the point. And then you don't want guys that have no shot whatsoever or that we just don't think are good players. Um, one guy that I did miss from this list that I think probably should go on there is Quinn and Williams, um, who... We, I think we expected to hit the ground running in year one and really didn't. Like He did not have a good rookie season at all for the Jets. I think just based off how good he was in college, it would be surprising if he was bad again in year two. So I would put him out there, even though most of these guys are somebody that we've seen evidence of in the NFL being you know, potentially right. good players and you're projecting forward. Like when Williams, we really didn't see any evidence of it. He was just rookie. okay. Yeah. Right, but we saw so much of it in his college career that it would be surprising if we saw nothing again this year. Um, So uh, on this list, two wide receivers at the top, Deontay Johnson of the Pittsburgh Steelers, Andy Isabella for the Arizona Cardinals, two guys who did it differently and two guys that we liked for completely different reasons. I mean, Deontay Johnson, we were sitting there watching film on him together, a bunch of us and just saying, wow, A a couple things, how open he got, uh, at the top of his routes, in and out of his breaks, and how well he got off of press coverage. An absolute steal for the Steelers in the middle rounds and should just continue to get targets, especially with Big Ben coming back. I mean, what what a pick for them in the third round, one of the better route runners in the entire draft. Yeah, and that that's the key is his quarterback situation last year. So he had seven more targets that we charted as open separation than any other rookie receiver. Um, but his quarterbacks combined for PFF grade of 48. You know, Mason Rudolph, Duck Hodges, even Roethlisberger before he got hurt was playing disastrously. So his quarterback situation was a mess. If Roethlisberger can, can come back healthy and play well, like he was getting open better than any other rookie wide receiver. He should be a guy capable of like, you know, big thousand yard plus seasons and a bunch of touchdowns. Now the Roethlisberger coming back healthy and good thing is 
I think it was already and in shape. They, so that's the thing, right? It was already, I think, a significant question mark. Now you're, you know, Glazer's reporting that his off-season workout is like, I do one thing of yoga, I go walk around a golf, and then uh, I drink beer. I'm going to not put any stock into that Glazer statement. I think as a society, we're doing a poor job at overreacting to quotes, one-liner quotes, right? I mean, this is us right now. We post videos all the time on Twitter, right? The video has, say, a minute of analysis. The tweet takes, you know, 10 of those words and puts them into quotes. And people respond to, like, the 10-word quotes and not the actual analysis on the video. So I'm not going to do that because Jay Glazer was kind of half making a joke, half saying, here's what Big Ben thinks a workout is. A little bit of yoga, some golf, and some beer, right? Because... So how much does that even matter? First off, how true is it? Secondly, how much does it matter? Is, has, is this a different workout routine than he's had for the last 15 years of his career? Probably not. And he goes out there and he's, and he's still pretty good. So I'm going to go ahead and say it doesn't matter. And Big Ben's going to come back and be okay. Other than the fact that, yes, he's got a whole elbow to, you know, have right. back in shape. And the last time we saw him in a, in a still image, there was a question about whether it was him or Matt Patricia. Um, I just, you know, the other thing is he hasn't actually been good for a while now. You know, it was yeah, always sort of, hey, he'll be back okay. was not great. Yeah. You know, he'll bounce back, but like at some point he needs to bounce back. So, you know, I, I, like, look, if Deontay Johnson gets even passable quarterback play, he should be in line for a big season. But that, I think, is a bigger question mark now than it used to be. Yeah, I think the thing with Big Ben, though, is he'll he'll give guys opportunities to make plays. Sure. So he'll give Deontay plenty of opportunities to make plays, even if the issue with him in 2018, like Big Ben put up big numbers, uh, but he just missed way more throws than he had previously. So but he's put up big numbers because he was still aggressive and attacking down the field. Um, Andy Isabella, a guy that we liked, again, for different reasons, not because he was creating incredible situation uh, separation, but because he was more of a deep threat. Um, we've talked about him a ton here. He when they did use him a little bit last year, there's an 88 yarder in there. Like there are a couple, a couple big plays. And it's kind of like what I was discussing before. If you're just trying to get value out of him as a speed receiver there, that is there to be had. I still think it's there to be had. You don't have to get 90 catches out of Andy Isabella for him to be a valuable player in that offense. He's he's a fun guy to try and put a comp to. Um, like Mike Renner thought he was Brandon Cooks pre-draft. I didn't like that one. Diving through 20-year-old footage, I was like, what if, <laughs> what if Isabella is Tim Dwight? <clears throat> um, I don't, I don't think that's a crazy one. Yeah. Remember Tim Dwight, but like electric speed, sir, didn't really have many other, you know, strings to his bow. I, now, I will say that the NFL in 2020 is better equipped to maximize the value of a Tim Dwight than it was 20 years ago. Um, but, like, so your thing was like, oh, it's still valuable. And you're in this, like, mode now. If, you know, if I get, like, two plays out of this speedster game, I'm happy. I'll um, talk about John Ross in a minute here because right. it's similar. But I'm intrigued that if you, like, if Andy Isabella is Tim Dwight and you essentially plug him into a 2020 offense, can they make enough use of him for that to be a decent thing? Or, are you still, or is it still going to be... Look, you're a kick returner, and occasionally you'll make a big play on offense. You're a gimmick. Um, because I think 
Isabella's thing is that he 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 has speed, and nobody else on that offense really does. Kyla Murray, obviously, but nobody else in terms of a receiving core element. Like New Hopkins is a possession plus kind of guy. Larry Fitzgerald is still going. Obviously, he's not getting any faster. Um, they don't have a ton of speed on that offense. Isabella can be that guy. He's not uh, Isabella fast, though. No, like, he's not Isabella He can fast. be the speed and the vertical threat. It's just that you're probably going to need to move things around to make him, to, to enable him to be that guy. Because I don't know that he can do it from the outside. I think he has to do it from the slot, at which point everything needs to sort of swing around him to make that function. But I think overall I, it's a win because that is valuable to your offense. Yeah, I, absolutely. And I, I think that they try, they've tried to put him in the slot. They've tried to gimmick him up and it's not really his skill set. You know, the gimmick stuff's fine. He's good with the ball in his hands. So give him some jet sweeps and all that stuff, but make him a vertical threat. And I just think we need to reset expectations sometimes for these players. Like if, just because you get a receiver in the first or second round doesn't mean they have to become uh, DeAndre Hopkins or Michael Thomas and have 150 targets every year and have 100 catches. Like it's OK if you're a 50 catch guy, if you're averaging 15 per whatever it is. Right. Like if you're going to become this chunk play receiver, that's worth a second rounder. You know, if, if you get 40 or 50 catches out of Isabella, but it's threatening the defense vertically helping to open up the greater good of the offense, if that's how they're using them and that's what he can do. So I see it. I can see it. Uh, I was watching John Ross for that whole declined 50-year option stuff. Mm -hmm. And my goodness, it is just hilarious because the first two weeks of last season was literally target after target going back and forth between, oh, look, there's John Ross. And then, oh, no, there's John Ross. Like It was incredible. Like you saw him in two weeks get behind the defense, high point a ball behind the defense, um, take a slant, absolutely shake a guy at the line of scrimmage, then run away from him. Uh, take a dig route, dig route, little, you know, 18, 20 yard in, take it 65 yards for a touchdown. Like you saw all of this in like two weeks last year. In those same two weeks, you saw him fall down on a route. You saw him stop on a route. You saw him drop probably two or three just easy passes. One was a shallow drag that probably should have gone for 40 if he had actually caught it. Um, but like, if you have John Ross and you have the, the big play potential in there, you're way more willing to take a few drops and mishaps here and there, as long as he's your number three or four wide receiver, right? Like that's, that's kind of what I'm saying with these guys. Like the big play, the big play payout is worth the headache of the other stuff, but it is maddening because it's like, man, why you drop? Why are you dropping this? Why, why do you have to go? Why is it such a roller coaster ride? Um, but speed, speed will blind you and keep you around, Sam. Yeah. Um, You're blinded by it. Another guy that I want to highlight, Ed Oliver. Um, I think generally he's just behind the curve in terms of, uh, his development as a pass rusher. I think it all stems from the way he was used in college. They had him basically head up over, uh, the sender as a true nose tackle, you know, rushing as a, a zero tech alignment. It was just ugly. And when you dove into the numbers, that was a big reason why he was never as productive in college from a pass rushing point of view, as his freaky movement skills would suggest he should have been. And you're like, well, okay, that means that at the next level, there's more to come. And I think there still is. It's just that he needs to learn all that, right? He's, he's behind the curve in terms of learning that aspect and how to rush the passer from a, a shooting gaps, you know, Aaron Donald style penetrating point of view. And it's just going to take him a while to get there. But again, I think it's there, right? There's no reason he can't develop that side of his game. And he has 
skills and you know movement ability that few other interior players have you know it's very very rare his movement skill set and i think because of that and because of the way he's been sort of behind the curve in terms of what he's been doing he should become a better player yeah i'm with you on oliver i mean we we kept saying just because he's undersized doesn't mean he's aaron donald like let's 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 forget the aaron donald comparisons for a while here uh, because not only to, it's it's way more than size and first step that makes Aaron Donald special. His hand usage is you know the best in the NFL. His power, the whole total package. I don't think he'll ever become Aaron Donald level, but we expected improved pass rushing at the NFL level. So this could easily be the year I think for Ed Oliver to show that. I think Devin Bush of the Steelers is an interesting name here. And again, I, Steelers fans feel pretty good about their defense, right? You bring in Minka Fitzpatrick for last year's first rounder. You trade it up to get Devin Bush. But the investment was so huge in Devin Bush, right? There was so much pressure on him to immediately be the guy in the middle of that defense. You gave up essentially two picks for him, two players. He had to be worth two players because they traded up 10 spots to get him in the first round. Um, He had his usual ups and downs, rookie linebacker. It's not easy to be that good right away, uh, but he's got all the skills to be an impact player in the middle of that defense. Yeah, in particular the Steelers, it's tough to play linebacker in that defense generally. So yeah, he, a lot of people will be like, "What are you talking about?" He broke out last year. He led you know all rookies and tackles by a mile. He had a lot of plays, but because they asked him to do so much, he didn't necessarily down to down dominate the way he should. If he gets all that together, you know that defense has made a lot of really good linebackers play not particularly well because they ask him to do absurdly difficult things. So I think. He showed last season that he's capable of doing it all. He just needs to be able to put it all together on a consistent basis. And I think he should because, you know, the guy's a really good player. Bucks cornerback Jamel Dean makes the list. I mean, if you, if you could take away the Seattle game where he looks like a poor guy, he was just chasing DK Metcalf around the field. He was tired and exhausted. He looked like the fatigue, you know, the fatigue bars down at like 10 percent and his speed goes from 90 to like 58 on a couple mm. plays. But um, after that game broke up a ton of passes and he's, you know, Dean and former Auburn teammate Carlton Davis make probably the biggest pair of cornerbacks in the NFL and one of the most difficult to complete passes on with their length and size and everything, the Bucks, and they play a ton of man over there. So Dean's definitely a name to watch. Yeah. His numbers are kind of crazy. He led all rookies in pass breakups despite playing like a third of the snaps of some of the guys ahead of him or some of the guys behind him rather. Um, it was, he, he's definitely trending in the right direction. If he continues his second year, the way he started last year, he'll be absolutely on fire. One guy we have to talk about is TJ Edwards. I knew I was going to set you up and let you, you know, no, do your do your spiel. It's crazy. He so he was a player that we you know we were looking at in college. The grading in college loved him. Linebacker from Wisconsin. And what's weird is so he doesn't goes goes undrafted because basically he tests badly, right? So he's another one of these linebackers, and we've been burned by a lot of these guys while we figure out you know, the, the dynamics of all this stuff that even if you're incredibly productive, if you're not athletic, you're going to struggle. Um, but the difference between Edwards and a lot of those other guys, like a Paul Dawson or a Scooby Wright or whatever, is Edwards was really good in coverage consistently. And those other guys were always more skewed towards run um, than they were in coverage. But Edwards has graded well in coverage. And so he goes undrafted, plays well in preseason with Philadelphia, gets, you know, very small opportunities, like 100-plus snaps last season, plays really well there. So now literally every every 
level of the game we've seen him at, he's graded exceptionally well. College, consistently, and in coverage. Uh, preseason, and now NFL regular season. He has a shot to start this year for the Eagles. And if he, like, if he continues that trajectory, his career would be one of the most, like, one of the most interesting ones for us generally to study and figure out, like, how... How do we identify more of those guys, right? What is it about him that made him successful despite not ticking any of these boxes from a measurables point of view and basically the NFL deciding it wasn't worth it until after the draft? It's so funny. He's another guy that you and I watched together. And I do think analysts in general focus too much on their own mistakes, right? You, You see that all the time. Like, hey, I'm an NFL draft analyst. Let me tell you the mistakes I've made through the years. I'm never gonna make these again. And it's like, first off, maybe you just had it wrong the first time. Anyway, maybe you just had it wrong. Um, Maybe it's just an outlier, whatever it is, right? Like your mistakes are still a small sample size. But you and I looked at each other, saw him look really slow on like one play to the flat. And we were and and we just had like flashbacks like, I'm not going to make that mistake again. I'm not going to, you know, I fell in love with, you know, Paul Dawson, who couldn't run in a straight line. And I fell in love with Scooby Wright, who couldn't move but they made great football plays. I'm not going to make that mistake again with TJ Edwards. Right. But so far he continues to just produce and produce and produce. And I love it. He'll, he'll definitely be a great player to watch. He's also, by the way, graded well on special teams. So literally everything he does on the field is good. It's just a football player. Yeah. It's just that he did not, um, he didn't uh, test well. He didn't look like an NFL athlete, but all right, let's wrap it up. Any other names? Wrap it up on this list. Uh, any other names you wanted to highlight before before we get to some questions and then Nick Kwiatkowski's flipper? Yeah, so let's well, let's transition towards Nick with a Las Vegas guy, Josh Jacobs. He was incredible on the ground last year. But what's interesting is what made me think he was such a great prospect was all of his receiving work. And not just, you know, catches the pass out of the backfield, does some things after the catch. Like he had receiver skill set they would split him out wide he would do receiver type things catch the ball in traffic away from his body you know he was a good receiver that had kind of not not quite christian mccaffrey level skills but towards that end of the spectrum and he didn't have any of that last year with the raiders he was split out out wide less than 20 of like 400 odd snaps um, he dropped three of the 26 passes that came his way. Like he did not look like a, <clears throat> like a plus receiver at all as a rookie, but he's like, that was the biggest part of his game or the most impressive part of his game in Alabama. So I'm curious if we'll see that in year two, but the Raiders have kind of loaded up on guys that would be doing that role. So I don't know how that's going to work. So the guy already broke out, but you're still calling him a breakout player Yeah, in a different, in a different facet. <laughs> That's fair. That's that, that's allowed. We will allow that. Uh, before we get to Nick Kwiatkowski, fellow Raider with Josh Jacobs, as you said, a couple questions uh, from the folks over at uh, it's it's on uh, iTunes, right? iTunes yes. is where they drop. So it. these are guys that gave us good questions, but failed to give us any way of getting in touch with them. So they can't win the free thing. Remember, if you want your question read out and answered. Um, and the free PFF subscription, you're going to need to give us a Twitter handle or some way of getting in touch with you. All right, Sam, let's hear it. What do we have for questions today? All right. I'm not going to read this first one because it's kind of lengthy. Um, but essentially, what's the guy's name? What's the pick? Uh, big Georgia fan. DeAndre Swift fan. Um, DeAndre Swift goes to the Lions. Um, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire goes to the Chiefs. And he's essentially asking, 
did everybody start to sleep on DeAndre Swift because he played in Georgia and they didn't maximize his receiving skills because he kind of feels that if you basically swap the two over and put DeAndre Swift in the Chiefs offense, that would be the guy everybody's talking up as, you know, this dominant first-year player. And Edwards Hilaire would be like, ah, he's gone to the Lions. I don't know if they're going to maximize his skill set. Effectively, he thinks that Swift is a better player in that role than Edwards Hilaire, but went unnoticed because of how little Georgie embraced it. So I would say there's an element to that, yes. I think it's very – we talk about this every year when we evaluate running backs, right? Um, like when Derrick Henry came out, it was like, oh, he can't catch. Like he only had like six balls thrown his way in college. And he's not that bad at actually catching the ball and turning up field and running with it. Right. Um, so I think there is an element of if you see it, it's easier to project it. But I think that's a also a valid way of doing things. Right. Because we always talk about the draft being risk management. So if you have a guy who has been used as a receiver and you've seen him do it well, and you have another guy who you think is going to be good at that role, it does help to at least see the guy that's done it well and project him going forward. Like you're, I think you're mitigating risk just a little bit if, even if you're losing a little bit of that hypothetical upside. The one other thing that I'll say too is despite DeAndre Swift being our number one running back on our draft board, there was very little difference between him and number five. Um, so Jonathan Taylor was up there, J.K. Dobbins, uh, Edward Solaire, all those guys, Edward Solaire, um, using my trusty PFF IQ here to be able to compare running backs against the, uh, draft classes here, 92nd percentile at missing, uh, forcing missed tackles on runs uh, against all guys that we've seen play in college in the NFL, 92nd percentile dating back to 2014 there, um, receiving grade 80th percentile. So like we're, we are seeing, we've seen a lot from Edward Solaire in spots that matter and project to the NFL level as far as making guys miss, where DeAndre Swift was very good, but not making guys miss at an extremely high level. He's got some angle-breaking speed and all that stuff, but I do think it helped seeing Edwards Hilaire line up all over the LSU offense and succeed. I think it's a fair point, though, that in, if you swap them over, the you would expect similar outcomes, right? that Swift within Kansas City's offense is a great fit as well. And Edward Hilaire in Detroit's offense wouldn't be as fancy. And I think it's fair to say that Edward Hilaire was potentially boosted by the LSU offense and uh, Swift was not, you know, equivalently boosted by playing Georges. Well, I mean, and then that comes back to the whole point that running backs right. are very close to interchangeable and your production is going to be dictated by four other things ahead of your actual yeah. skill level. Yes. So it all comes back to running backs don't matter, I guess, Sam. Yes. Um, second question from somebody called King Civil. Uh, is the new is new running back slash wide receiver conversion, Lynn Bowden Jr., uh, a move to positionless football on offense? You've talked about that on defense a ton. Uh, a year ago, he would have been drafted as a wide receiver. Are we seeing an example of a new era of football with wide receiver running back hybrids? Uh, with the low value we place on standard running backs and the better but still low value on pass-catching running backs, could this more pass-game-friendly hybrid position be the new normal? Uh, you could also throw Antonio Gibson in there as well. Watch throw a lot of people in there. Running back slash wide receiver. Um, do you have uh, initial thoughts? I have thoughts on that. Do you have initial thoughts on that as well, Sam? Yeah, I, I think this is the one area where I still think there is a a 
gap in the market or a you know a, a, a percentage to be stolen in terms of maximizing this area, right? The yeah, every time people the, the, so the, the analytics continues to knock off running backs generally, like we just did. Um, running <laughs> right. backs generally not they're interchangeable, right? Um, oh, but what about receiving running backs? You know, these guys catch fast out of the backfield. They change your offense. Like, well, they don't really because if every target you give to a running back is one you could have given to a wide receiver and a tight end, and those do better. And even if you, you know, slice them down into various situations, it's just generally very rarely a good play to pass the ball to a running back. Now, what? so unless those guys are, you know, then it's like, well, what if they split out as a receiver and they're running wide receiver patterns, you know, like a, a David Johnson or Le'Veon Bell or a Christian McCaffrey? Like, well, <laughs> the numbers say they're worse at that than just putting a wide receiver there. So again, that's not a good way of doing it. The one area that I think there is still mileage to be had is this, this idea of if you don't know what this guy is, if I genuinely can't tell if he's a receiver or a running back, I have a personnel problem every single snap in the huddle. I don't know what to line up in. And this was the thing the Patriots did. This was the Aaron Hernandez problem, right? Originally, tight ends were a matchup problem because they could run patterns like receivers and they could block like a tackle. And that put you in a bind from a personnel standpoint. Hernandez was bad as a blocker. So the Patriots said, well, okay, let's give him the ball to run. And now it's the same problem, right? Now I don't know if he's a running back and I need to put an extra linebacker out there or if he's a receiver and I need to put a defensive back out there. Again, you had a problem every single snap when he was on the field because you didn't know how to treat him. I think there's mileage in that for a running back. And whether it's a, day, uh, a Ty Montgomery, whether it's a Christian McCaffrey, I don't think teams are, have embraced enough genuinely making a guy a hybrid between those two positions and saying that you are not going to be able to tell where he's going to line up and this guy is legitimately good enough to play both of these positions and we're going to actually make this a problem for you on a consistent basis. One one of our uh, commenters, one of our viewers in, in YouTube mentions Percy Harvin. The other guy that's been used in that sure. way is Randall Cobb. He had mm -hmm. running back like skills, but he was a slot receiver first. The trick, though, is like Christian McCaffrey is a running back first, right? So you see Christian McCaffrey in the huddle. You're like, oh, he's a running back. OK, he might split up wide. So I get so what you're saying is the reverse, right? Here's a guy that the 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 defense treats as a receiver. That was Aaron Hernandez. And if you guys have right now, you guys have free NFL game pass, right? So you can go to NFL.com, sign up your free NFL game pass through the end of the month. Go check out 2012 divisional round against the Houston Texans. The way uh, it's the Patriots, um, the way, you know, the way they used Aaron Hernandez. I know he's not the player you want to talk about too much, but he was such a unique talent. But the way that they used him, he was treated by the league as a wide receiver. Mm. And the Patriots started the game in no huddle and he was their running back. So they didn't have a running back on the field. So they'd be an empty and he'd be a receiver who's tough to cover. And then they'd run no huddle. And every now and again, they just throw him in the backfield. And that we talk about the running back and the running game is not dictated by running back skill. It's dictated more by math. It's dictated more by players in the box. Well, if one of the players in the box is a cornerback who's not used to playing there and is easy to block and has no idea what he's doing, you have changed the math. So essentially, yes, if the NFL has more players that they that defenses treat as wide receivers and they're capable of taking handoffs. That's when you could start stealing five and six yards, a, yards a carry, I think, because you've changed the math. You've used a player 
to change the math the same way Lamar Jackson uh, early RG3 changed the math in the run game. So, yes, Lynn Bowden, uh, Antonio Gibson. Uh, we've seen the Steelers do it with like Ryan Switzer. Hasn't been all that effective, but I don't know if Switzer's the best guy for right. that because the defense isn't afraid of him in either capacity. But I am all for give me a guy who's a wide receiver in name and give him running back snaps. Um, if he has, he just needs like a baseline of feel for taking a handoff, making one cut on his own read or setting up a block, right? That's all that they need to maximize that. So I'm all for that as a concept. And to me, it's less about, you know, it's less about reversing the way you do it as in take a running back and split him out wide versus take a receiver and put him in the backfield a few times. It's more about shifting the balance, right? So instead of like 95% one thing and then a few plays here and there sprinkled in to cause you some problems, I want to bring those two bars closer together. So now this guy is both of these things and you have to concern yourself with both of them at the same time. Right. Otherwise it's not a problem. Like it, even the Randall Cobb, the Percy Harvins, like those, those make some big plays, but it, you, it's, they had the big plays because you weren't concerned about that. Right. He was like, okay, if he goes into the backfield, we'll deal with it. It wasn't like crap. We actually have to think about this on a regular basis. If, those guys, or even if instead of those guys, you say, all right, they don't really have that skill set to carry the ball 15 times in a game. Let's start looking at the LaVisca Chenaults or the Gibsons or the, you know, the guys that are actually have running back ability and size and durability. And you say, right, now this guy's going to get 15 carries in a game and he's going to get 10 targets in a game. And you have no idea whether he's going to be wide receiver or, or running back on any given play. That causes defense problems they don't like it see i'm, I'm gonna agree with you i think on that too because i think there's a difference between a change of pace play and actually building an offense in yeah. spurts around this right going back to the new england game they ran no huddle like if you have a personnel package and it's two wide receivers two tight ends and one of these hybrid players right whoever that may be let's say it's chenault in jacksonville and then you run no huddle with it. The benefit there is, okay, we can go empty and we have five guys who can catch the ball. We can bring two tight ends in. And we could put a guy who's capable of taking a handoff in the backfield. All along the way, you're running no huddle and the defense is in whatever personnel package they started in, right? They can't sub unless you sub, right? And you just keep the pressure on. So that's where I think teams should find the edge. And especially teams that have a Derek Carr at quarterback or have – yeah. Um, a not, I mean, like, yeah, Brady runs this all the time or breeze can run this. Like obviously the best quarterbacks can run this, but this is one of those edges you can get. If you have QB eight through 25, that classic mid tier that I always right. talk about, like this is where not, you steal yards. Defenses on the field. Don't like it because like literally they have to focus every single snap on who's out there and what the hell do we do against that? They're yep. not going to like it week to week either. Cause they're going to have to spend time working out how to deal with this. And then the other thing is, you know, so obviously it requires a specific skill set to make this happen. Like you need a guy that is something of a hybrid player and those don't necessarily grow on trees. But the flip side to that is the first team that does it, the one team that embraces this as a strategy basically has the entire market on these players that were seen as tweeners and, you know, a problem before now, right? It's like this guy is kind of a hybrid player and we don't really have a great spot for him. This team now values those guys more than anybody else. You could have had multiple multiple of those players in this draft alone. You could have had Chenault. You could have come back with Antonio Gibson. You could have stocked yourself with three of these guys in this draft 
in isolation. If you're the only team that's actually pursuing this as a skill set that you want, you could easily find yourself plenty of these guys. It's not and, like it's not that limited a marketplace. And here's the other reason why I like it more than just a change of pace. A change of pace is like, yes, defenses have to prepare for that, but you have to prepare for that too. Like the Saints have to prepare themselves for the Taysom Hill package. They have to practice that every week. If you take a guy and all you're doing is changing his alignment, the pressure is more on him, the not not the quarterback or the rest of his team, right? You're just running your offense with a guy that happens to be able to line up in multiple spots. So that was like the wildcat thing years ago. Like, okay, it was great. It caught the Patriots off guard for a game, and then the league caught up to it. The wildcat essentially became a creative way to average four yards per carry. That's all it was. It's like, oh, let's just do this in a different way because there was no big plays that could be built off of it. There was no, nobody could throw, right? Ronnie Brown threw like a couple touchdowns on the goal line and that was it, right? So everybody tried to do the wildcat and they all averaged four yards per carry and they spent a ton of practice time on it to just have a mediocre run game when they probably should have been practicing throwing the ball better, right? Remember the Jets back in the day. Oh, let's run the wildcat and take the ball. Like, Sanchez needs those practice reps. You know what I mean? So um, I think this is a way to still remain in your offense and keep the defense off balance and and make the run game actually more effective um, than it is right now. So when I'm GM, Sam, Mm. we're doing it. Getting more of these hybrid players. Receivers will be taking way more handoffs on my team. How hard could it be? Don't, you shouldn't label them as receivers. They're a new hybrid player. It's a positionless game. No, receiver. no, no. You don't understand, Sam. When I go to a press conference, I call him a receiver. When I say it's a receiver, the defense says, oh, it's a receiver. We're going to put a nickel back in there. We're going to put a dime back in there. But then he's taking handoffs. I need to have the language right to dictate the defense as well. It starts mm. at the press conference. Come on, man. I'm one step ahead of you. You can't call him a hybrid. Then they treat him as a hybrid. You call him a receiver. And they treat him as a receiver because that's what we want. Anyway, great show. Let's wrap not it up. Over yet, Steve. It's not over yet because we got Nick Kwiatkowski. Not on YouTube, though. YouTube, we're leaving. We're out of yeah, here. We're out of there. We appreciate everybody that tuned in. We got some great suggestions that some people are saying, hey, that's Debo Samuel. That's Jalen Hurd. Like the Niners are kind of using these types of guys. Mm-hmm. Right. They have the they have those skill sets. Good job. Astute viewers. Um <laughs> J.J. Arcega Whiteside, can he break? Oh, yeah, he could break out. Not be one of those hybrid guys, though. Um, so, YouTube, we're going away. Thanks to everybody for tuning in. If you're listening to the podcast, here comes Nick Kwiatkowski, new linebacker for the Las Vegas Raiders. We'll be back on Monday, guys. Everybody have a good weekend and enjoy the Nick K interview. Go check it out on our podcast channel. All right, we're happy to have Nick Kwiatkowski, one of the newest Las Vegas Raiders, here to join us discussing a little bit of the offseason and why you know, he ended up in Las Vegas. Nick, thanks for joining us. How's the offseason going so far? It's going well. Uh, like different. It's different than past offseason, but you know, making the most out of it. Yeah, for sure. I, I think my first question for Raiders fans out there, how'd you end up uh, with the Raiders? How, how, how did that process go? Uh, and, and just you know, how, what did that decision look like for you? Um, so, I mean, before free agency started, before anything really started, me, uh, my agents kind of sat down and kind of went over teams that could possibly be looking for a linebacker. Um, so once free agency opened, you know, they called, um, kind of explained what they were doing there, um, explained the transition to Las Vegas and the excitement around that. 
And I'm, I bought in. I mean, there's just what they were doing was great. Uh, people they were bringing new people, guys in. Um, you know, they were still kind of transitioning offense and defenses. Um, and I just felt like it was a great opportunity for myself, you know, to step in and play football. So they bring in Corey Littleton as well from the Rams, you know, bringing both of you guys right within a week of each other, a couple of days of each other. Uh, how do you think your game complements what he brings to the table? How familiar, familiar are you with, with what Littleton does? Yeah, so we got an opportunity to play them this past season while I was in Chicago, we played the Rams. Uh, and, you know, he's a playmaker, you know, can kind of does it all, covers, plays the run well. Um, and I think we complement each other very well, to be honest. Um, you know, it's hard to say that now and really we've been remotely just meeting. Um, but, I mean, I'm looking forward to working with him. And I feel like our games, I mean, I can play physical downhill. Um, I think he's a guy that makes – great plays in space and you kind of do it all. So I think we're going to, we're going to call them each other. Well, all right, let's talk about that physical downhill game because back in 2016, when you came out, I was the author of our draft guide. I pretty much wrote all the scouting reports there. And my note on you is that you've got a strong flipper when taken on fullbacks, just wrecking fullbacks. Is that fair? Is that a, a safe? Dis- I've never actually used that for anybody else. I don't even know if it makes any sense, but it seems like that's what you love to do. Take it on fullbacks in the hole and play in the run. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, flipper, I haven't heard that in a while, but I, mean, I made that up. <laughs> I mean, I've heard it. I've heard it in the past, yeah. but, um, you know, that's something that at West Virginia at the college level, I mean, that was big. We were pretty much run first uh, linebackers, you know, downhill, hit your gap and figure out the pass if you're wrong. Um, so I think it developed there, um, you know, repping it in an in individual, you know, especially I was playing Mike my junior year. I mean, it was play, hit those A gaps, hit those A gaps. And if it is a pass, you know, drop back after. Right. So I just kind of got a, just the mindset, you know, I'm going to hit this a gap and whatever happens, happens type thing. And, uh, kind of developed from there and I'm something I've worked on since. Yeah. How different is, is, you know, your responsibility in the NFL versus in college, uh, obviously going to a new scheme now, but even just with the bears, what, what you were asked to do, are there times when you're almost slow playing against the run and almost in playing pass first, how different is it from West Virginia to the NFL? Yeah, it's very different. Um, so at West Virginia, I played, I think, four different, well, three different schemes, four different uh, defensive coordinators. So I kind of got a mixture of everything. But uh, for my last few years, we were in a 3-3-5 defense. So, I mean, coming to the next level, I mean, there was a lot of things different. Uh, like you said, the slow playing the run was probably the biggest thing for me. I was always, you know, quick to, you know, get downhill, play the run, uh, play actions. You know, I was, in, I was in the gap. So it was something I had to adjust on the fly, you know, my, my rookie season, even, I mean, OTAs, my rookie year. Oh, something that took me a little longer um, to kind of just break that habit. Um, as for the pass game, a lot of similarities um, for the pass game. I mean, you know, the people you drop off of. And, I mean, I got the opportunity to play multiple positions also in that defense in college. Um, so, you know, playing Sam had similarities to different things. So, I mean, there was definitely some, some big carryover. Um, but, I mean, that was probably the biggest thing. I mean, you hit it was a slow play in the run and, you know, just more, more patience. Um, you know, you got – four down linemen, you know, a lot of times compared to three when I was in college. And I uh, pretty much always a nickel in, in that three, three, five. So just difference there. Um, but it was something that, I mean, I worked on. I mean, OTAs, I noticed the difference immediately. So it was something I kind of made a point to work on, I mean, from the very beginning. Yeah, so you've always graded well in our system. We go play by play. And, you know, we give you credit when you take on fullbacks and, and you know, open up plays for your teammates. We, t- we, we try to... Uh, you know, properly allocate uh, where the production comes from on a place. So you've always performed well uh, in our system. How do you feel like your game is going to translate to the new scheme with the Raiders? I, I know it's early for you, but 
how different is it? Will your role evolve at all? And how have you, you know, essentially kept sharp through these years being kind of in and out of the lineup? Yeah, like you said, it's early. So, I mean, I'm not sure how certain things, how I'm going to be used, how my role is going to expand quite yet. But, I mean, just from initial thoughts, I mean, there's a lot of carryover. Um, there's definitely some differences. I mean, I, th- I actually see a lot of things that, you know, I used in Clawson at 3-3-5 in this defense. Uh, but there's a lot of carryover from the past couple years. Um, for me, I mean, just for me to really be able to answer that, I mean, I have to get on the field and, you know, start running yeah. around and being in the, in the, in the system. Um, but that was something, I mean, I played in a lot of schemes in college. I got an opportunity to play for two d- defensive coordinators in Chicago. So, I mean, that's something I kind of, you know, used to advance, take, take things from each and, one, each and every one of them and, you know, build on it, kind of add it to my game. So the draft was just this weekend. And as a former fourth round pick, you know, we're always trying to evaluate players and you put them on a big board and you rank them and all that stuff. But it's always a little bit more art than science. And you're sitting here heading into your second contract as a fourth round pick. What are your thoughts on the draft, uh, being a mid rounder and being able to continue to develop uh, and, and just what that means to you knowing that, you know, it's, it's not easy evaluating players and your proof of it as you head to your, to your second deal here. Yeah. I mean, well, first the draft, it, uh, I mean, the whole virtual thing, I mean, it was hard. I mean, I watched most of it, uh, very different this year, but you know, I just for, I mean, as a prospect, you really, when draft day comes, you really have no idea what's going on. Um, you know, for me, I heard so many different things. I mean, predictions, I mean, which <laughs> round, I mean, it was all over the place. So, I mean, I right. learned quick kind of not to, really expect things because I mean one day I'm hearing great things the other other side I'm hearing you know you know you might be late round or undrafted so I mean I personally I didn't know what to expect um but I think everyone has their own opinions and how you fit in certain schemes and um you know just as my advice to a prospect is just whatever wherever you're at wherever you end up you know take advantage of your opportunities um because when it comes down to it uh you know you're going to get an opportunity you know you got to make the most of it yeah, that's great. Let's just wrap it up with this, right? You said, uh, you told me off air, you guys, virtual installs, right? Like this is the the most, the weirdest for all of us. Yeah. Off season in history, uh, you know, is that, how's that going for you? How's that going to be being able to adjust to the new scheme? And, you know, how much uh, can you glean from, from the virtual stuff as difficult as it is, maybe not being on the field? We just started. So um, we're just kind of diving in. So I'm sure it'll develop from here, but uh, for me, I mean, it's, I'm just taking the opportunity to know just the mental aspect, get it down as much as I can. You know, um, you really can't simulate, you know, being on the field, making calls, having people in front of you, having guys come at you. Like, for me, that's the best way you can learn is just getting thrown in the fire. So, I mean, obviously we can't do that right now. So everyone's adjusting. Um, so just take that mental, for me, I'm just taking that mental aspect of it, you know, trying to get as good as I can with that before we have that opportunity to get on the field. Um, you know, I'm not doing much. I'm working out and, you know, having meetings. So I'm taking that extra time to study and try to get, you know, the scene on paper as best as, best as I can. Um, and just kind of repetition of just looking at it, you know, watching film, going through film, making calls, you know, just trying to get as close to the real thing as I possibly can. Uh, let me just, let's wrap it up with this too. Making calls and what you have to do on the field. Because our, our fans, I don't think completely understand. I know fans don't completely understand your responsibilities. Can you take us through? say like pre-snap everything that you're looking at, what you need to do and what, what, what is it, what goes into, you know, making a call before, before the snap? There's a lot of things, um, you know, pre-snap when, you know, when the offense comes to the ball, I mean, I'm looking at everything as a middle linebacker, you have to look at everything. You have to 
you know, get people lined up, make certain calls, you know, it could be really anything, uh, depending on the call, where the tight end is, where the running back is. I mean, it goes on and on. But, I mean, as a middle linebacker, look at everything. Um, you know, the receiver split can tell you something. You know, the running back split. So, I mean, you're kind of getting a, a snapshot of everyone's position. And then it doesn't stop there. I mean, when the motions, things of that nature, you're kind of, you know, just you know, trying to get an idea of what they're, what they're going to run, what they're going to do, all by just how they're aligned. Um, and, you know, that comes in with watching film and, pretty much studying so you know what you at least have an idea of what's going on or, or what's going to happen during the play it just helps you uh helps for me to slow down the game you know be able to react and just if you can narrow down to three or four things we're doing you know you can react yeah it's difficult to keep everybody especially in the back seven right on the same page uh making sure everybody's in the right area um and then the real last thing last year as a backup in and out of the lineup, a lot of injuries in the linebacker core. How do you stay sharp? How do you go out there, have the productive season career year for you really going out there um, and just being solid from start to finish. How do you stay sharp uh, when there's so many moving pieces around you? So it was something that, I mean, I learned early uh, in my career is you never really know when your opportunity is going to come. You never know what's going to happen. And, you know, as a linebacker room last year, I mean, as a whole, we all did a great job, you know, staying on top of things and preparing going into the week preparing, like we were all starting. Um, you know, I credit that room. I credit, I mean, everyone in that room is just how well we communicated throughout the week, how well we watched film together, you know, making calls, bouncing ideas off each other. It's just, we all prepared each week going into, like we were all starting. Um, and for me, I mean, like I said, I learned early. I mean, my rookie year, I got thrown in there. Uh, and I mean, it's, if you're not ready, I mean, you, it shows. I mean, you can tell your, uh, your gameplay really I mean, is impacted. So. Something I kind of made a point of throughout my last couple of years, you know, just prepare, prepare like you're starting, prepare like you're taking every snap. Um, Cause you never know. Um, just kind of be ready for anything. So if you do get that opportunity, you can make the most of it. Awesome. Thanks, Nick. Really appreciate you taking the time today and uh, yeah, best of luck this off season with the virtual installs. And of course, when you get to Las Vegas. No problem. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. quick break to tell you guys about NFL Game Pass, the only way that you can replay every game all season long. You can relive all the gutsy calls, crazy catches, wild comebacks, and breakout stars from every game every week. It's all the action, all the football you can handle all in one place. So every game that we're talking about right now, you guys can rewatch it after the fact. I'm going to be going back, and you guys can too. Go check out Lamar Jackson in week one. Go check out Dak Prescott and what that Cowboys offense actually did go check out kyler murray and his nfl debut that's my favorite thing about nfl game pass you can go back and watch at any time and if you haven't watched a condensed game yet you have to try it out it's every play from the game back to back to back so you can replay an entire nfl game in the fraction of the time it normally takes it's how i'm able to follow all the mvp candidates all the breakout stars and of course your waiver wire pickups all season long to see all the action this season and stay on top of all the big storylines, you need NFL Game Pass. Best of all, you can kick off the 2019 NFL season with a seven-day free trial of NFL Game Pass. Just sign up now at nfl.com slash pro football focus NFL.